my name is Elliot Everett. I am approved to be the next campus minister here uh, for RUF here at Mercer. Yeah. Um, and in, uh, in two days, my wife and I, where's Carrie? Where are you? Raise your hand. Hi. They're right in front of me. Awesome. Uh, in two days, I, we've, we think we have found the house we want. So that's a big answer to prayer. Um, I am from Mississippi, born and raised, never left. Uh, so this will be an adventure for me coming two states over. Uh, but my wife, Carrie, she grew up in Peachtree City uh, and went here to Mercer and was involved in RUF. And she was my RUF intern at Ole Miss. And then we got married. Uh, and then Mary Jane Meyer, who a lot of you know, Mary Jane uh, Davis, before she got married, uh, I grew up with her and she came here and married Greg. So we just kind of mirrored each other there on that one. So it was great. Well, um, I love RUF. Uh, I've been around RUF since I was 13 years old. And this is something I've always wanted to do, so I can't tell you how excited I am. You know, RUF's mission statement is that uh, we strive to reach students for Christ and equip them to serve. So in other words, we hope and pray our desires that believers on the college campus would be strengthened in their faith and that the lost would be found and claimed for Christ. And in RUF, we firmly believe that the grace of God offered to us in the gospel is powerful and sufficient to do both. And that's what I want to talk to you a little bit about tonight as we look at 2 Kings chapter 5. If you have your Bibles and want to turn there, or if you want to read along with me here in your bulletin. We're going to look at the gospel. I'm not going to really give you any context here, but the gospel and how it came to a man named Naaman here in 2 Kings 5. Let's read these first 15 verses together. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but... He was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and he told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of, Israel, the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and he said, am I God? to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go 
and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. And then he returned to the man of God and he and all his company. And he came and he stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. This is God's word. Let's pray before we consider it. Father, we... Uh, do come before you, and as we open your word, we pray that it would be you who speaks to us, that the words and the truth of the grace of your gospel would be etched indelibly upon our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Um, like I said, we're going to talk about the gospel tonight, and I titled this, uh, Can a Leper Change His Spots? Is a leper able to change his spots? As we see in this story, the answer is no. Chariots of Fire, it's one of those Christian movies that pastors, at least Presbyterian pastors I've been around, love to quote it all the time. Um, but in that movie, Chariots of Fire, uh, the kind of the antagonist, he's not really the antagonist, but he's opposite the main character. He's a Jewish runner that runs the 100 meter in the Olympics. There's a scene where he's in the locker room and he's about to go out and run the 100 meter race. And this is what he says to a gentleman uh, in the room with him. He says, I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. I'll raise my eyes and I'll look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? Something in that quote there sums, I think, the human condition. Because I think there is something within all of us, this tendency, this natural bent to define ourselves, everyone around us, all that we do by success and achievement. So we come, to, we come to find our identity, our purpose, our meaning in what we have done. Whether we're failures, whether we're successes, whether we're just average people, we've defined it all upon what have I done with my life. I'd go so far to say that we, in our culture, are slaves to achievement. We measure ourselves, we measure everyone around us based on success and achievement. If you grow up, you make good grades in college, you get a steady job, you get a nice, sweet husband or wife, you have nice, pretty little kids, your parents will have felt like they did a pretty good job. I'd suggest to you that we worship at the altar of achievement. I'd say also that it is the biggest stumbling block to believing the power of the gospel. 
That is why the gospel is a stumbling block. That is where we stumble over it. I would suggest to you tonight, in other words, our obsession with individual success is so great that it has come to define our walk with Christ, our relationship to him, how we have related to God, how we think that he has related to us. But I want to look tonight at what the gospel tells us, the power of the gospel for the lost and for those who believe. So three things, you got them there in your uh, handout if you want to go with me. The first one is getting the gospel. How do we get the gospel? Well, Naaman here, and we see in 2 Kings 5, he's the kind of guy we all would have loved. We all would have wanted him to be a member of RUF on the leadership team in your fraternity or sorority. He wouldn't have been in sorority, obviously, he's a guy. Um, but leadership, we would have loved this guy. He's done everything the right way. He's worked hard all his life. Uh, he's been rewarded for it. He's living the American dream. You look at verse 1 there. He's the commander of the army of the king of Syria. Um, he was a great man with his master in high favor. And because of him... Syria had won victory in battle. Yeah, this guy was legit. He was uh, the man next to the king, at least. And the author builds him up with all these things he tells us in the first verse and a half. And then one little phrase tears him completely down. But he was a leper. In other words, what the author is telling you is that Naaman had it all. But at the same time, he had nothing. He was a dead man walking. Leprosy back then, this disease where slowly, inch by inch, your body fell apart. Skin dried, cracked, digits would fall off, bones would crack. Uh, it was pretty bad and it was so contagious or people feared that it was so contagious that if you had it, you were cast out away from any social contact uh, whatsoever. He was living a slow, rotting death. Naaman had it all, but he didn't. All the prestige, all the might, all the honor, all the success could not change one glaring fact. He was a leper. That was all that mattered. Nothing he had done before or ever could do would change this defining characteristic. So for us, the gospel comes in, and it tells us, in God's sight, in terms of eternity, we are Naaman. We are dead men walking, estranged from our God, estranged from heaven, estranged from what we were meant to be, cast out from that glorious creation in which uh, we were made for. So at the end of the day, nothing can erase that fact for us. We are sinners in the hands of an angry God, as Jonathan Edwards uh, put it in that famous sermon. We're sinners living in rebellion against our maker. So the gospel comes in and it tells us sin is our condition. It's not what we do. It's who we are. We're sinners, not people who commit sins. It's what the gospel tells us first and foremost. If the gospel does not tell you that first and foremost, it's not the gospel. You can tell someone all day long that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life, but if that's all you say to them, that means nothing. Tell someone whose parents just got divorced that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their lives. Someone who just miscarried. Someone who had a parent die, a sibling die, a close friend die. People who are acquainted with the fallenness and brokenness of the world and our condition. 
The gospel comes in and tells us we have a problem. Washing in the Jordan would have made no sense to Naaman had he not had leprosy. So in other words, we have to begin with the gospel. The sinner knows that he's a sinner. And when he sits under the preaching of the gospel, when he hears the gospel, and he hears it as it's presented to us in the New Testament, he understands that God is this one that is holy and that is high above us. And I've never fully understood how exactly high above us he is. That we're completely separated from him because of who he is and because of who we are. He's got this holy standard because he is holy. There's something that we're supposed to be, but we aren't. We don't even come close, and we're doomed if somehow it doesn't get fixed. So what do we do then? At that point, we're kind of like the Philippian jailer in Acts uh, Acts 16 where he says, what must I do to be saved? And the response back to him is believe. Believe. That's all you got to do. And we think, is that it? We're just like Naaman, go wash. What are you kidding me? I thought you were going to like wave your magic wand and we're going to have fun with this. Believe? But that's it. And that's it, why? Because of the cross. That's it because of the cross. Because at the cross, Jesus did anything and everything that was required of us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, but the gift of God. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. So by his life, by Jesus' life, which he gave us on the cross, Jesus satisfied everything that was required of me to meet this holy standard that hangs over my head. And by his death and by his hanging on the cross, he endured the punishment I deserved for not meeting that standard. So this gap, if we imagine God's up there, I'm down here, I've got to somehow figure out how to get up there, the gap has been bridged. It is forged. We are there. We are, have complete access now only and solely because of Jesus. So this blows to smithereens our concept of achievement, our concept of success, success our bent to define ourselves by what we do. And we don't know how to handle it. Jesus paid it all, the gospel tells us. We've been told that eternal life is gained through nothing of our own doing. Only by the mercy and grace of God in Christ. Naaman just doesn't quite get it. Just wash. So that's the definitive act of God's saving grace. Something Stephen's been going through with you in Romans as you read through Romans. This definitive once and for all act that God has accomplished for us in Christ by saving us, justifying us, declaring us righteous. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done. But we all get hung up on the next step. Okay, I believe that. But what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? I'm a sinner saved by grace, but yeah, I'm still a sinner. What do I do with that? There's still this holy standard. I have this thing now called the Christian life, walking with Jesus, being conformed into his image. The gospel saves me. I get that. What next? Why do I seem to keep screwing this thing up? What next? Well, we see Naaman here stumbles over the gospel as we move to the second point. 
Naaman knew that he had a problem. He knew that he had a problem that would kill him if something wasn't done about it. Lo and behold, this little servant girl mentions a prophet. So he gets it. I've got a problem. Now there's an answer. Got to go find the answer. So he packs up and he registers for the trip. At the basest of levels, every Christian knows this. I've got a problem of eternal significance. Jesus is the answer. But then we remember how and why we saw our need in the first place. There's still God's holy standard. That's still there, still required of me. Jesus himself said, be holy as I am holy. What do I do with that? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus, what are you saying? So the Christian looks at his life and he says, okay, I'm not doing what I need to be doing. So I need to start doing what I need to be doing. You see where we're going here. I'm a Christian now. The old is gone. The new has come. I have to quit my rough and rowdy ways and follow Jesus. And what we do is we picture for ourselves this ideal me. If I am walking with Christ and we are just jiving together, I've got a picture of what that's supposed to look like. What my daily life is supposed to look like, what my speech to my friends and other people I come in contact with, all these things that I'm doing, I've got a picture of what needs to be happening. And like Naaman, we kind of pack up our things and we set out on our journey. Okay, let's go do this. And look at what Naaman does. He's told... You look at his story. He's told the prophet will heal you. So he packs his bags, tons of treasure, letter of recommendation from his king, and he goes and sees the king. Then go see the prophet. He's told about a prophet, but he goes to see the king. What has Naaman done? Naaman has done business as usual. It makes sense. Self-made man at the top. Goes straight to the top, king of Israel. He's worked hard all his life, pulling strings, dropping names, spending lots of money. That's how he's built his life. The way he's always dealt with important people, so why not this? So in other words, Naaman, how Naaman had lived his life, now directly is defining how he approaches God. Catch that? How he has lived his life is now directly defining how he approaches God. And that is precisely where so many of us get hung up. We've lived our whole lives being told and believing the lie that we are what we do. And what we often do we step back, we've gauged this holy standard. There it is. I got to get there. So I get to work, start my journey, business as usual. There's a bar, just like my parents have set a bar for me every stage of life. Here's the bar, I gotta go meet it. And I gotta try my hardest, right? I'll fall some, uh, but just as long as I'm still climbing, we're doing good. So I have to start doing Christian things. I have to stop doing non-Christian things. And what we've done then at that point is we've now defined our Christian life, our relationship with Jesus, our standing with God by what we are doing. You view your relationship to God as this kind of up and down roller coaster. If this is a standard, you know, some days I'm doing really good, some days I'm not so good, and I'm just gradually, I'm just riding this roller coaster in my relationship with God. So, 
If the holy standard's up there, I believe the gospel, so that means the, the cross has now bridged, bridged this gap that used to exist between me and God. But now I'm viewing my Christian life as trying to kind of meet this. If the cross bridges this gap, and now I'm now trying to get closer, I'm viewing my approach to this as an upward trend. You kind of you have to mentally picture this for yourself. What happens to the cross in that picture? Smaller and smaller and smaller. The closer I get to achieving this bar that God has set for me, the smaller and smaller the cross becomes in my life because my relationship to God is no longer defined by it. It's defined by what I'm doing. So we've defined our relationship with God not only according to his standard and whether I've meant it. And there's only two things that can happen to you as a result. One is burnout. You just get so tired of the roller coaster, you can't take it anymore. It has worn you out. I suggest to you that maybe a good number of you couldn't wait to get to college because of this very thing. Because your whole life, you feel like everybody's been looking at you and you're either closer to God's standard or you're farther away from it and you've just gotten tired of it. Or, like Naaman, you can try the route of self-righteousness. You've played the game well. You've mastered it. You wear your church face well. You know what I mean? That face that tells everyone around you that you've got it all together. But either way, something else inevitably happens. As the cross shrinks in your life, your heart shrinks. Your love for the cross, your love for God, your love for the gospel. Burnout, the burnout, your heart has grown so cold that you just think there's no hope for you anymore anyway. Or the self-righteous, your heart has grown so hard, no one in your life comes close to, setting, to meeting the standard that you've set in your life. There's gotta be a better way, right? I suggest you there is. We look at this final one, living by the gospel. We see in the story, the king of Israel knew Naaman had it completely wrong. So left with no other choice, Naaman heads for the prophet. And even there, you gotta love the fact he doesn't even get to see Elijah, Elisha. Elisha sends a servant to the door. So he's left standing outside. So no wonder he gets mad. But the instructions are clear. Go wash in the river and you will be clean. And we're told that Naaman goes away in a rage. Interesting. But is this, let me ask you this question. Is that so hard to see? Is it so hard to see? Because we come to God, we come to Christianity, and we even come knowing that we're screwed up. But what do we want? We want results. Because we've been taught and we've believed that everything in this life gives results. We want results. And God looks at us and he says, have faith. And we think, what does that mean? Why, what am I supposed to do? Why do I still feel dirty? Aha. Go wash. Go wash. Just as he says 
to Naaman. And here's the thing to kind of tie all this together. Do you believe that the same message that can save you is the same message that will grow you as a Christian? The gospel. Do you believe that which was the power of God unto salvation, Paul tells us in Romans 1.16, is the same power that will take you to the finish line? So in other words, if you're going to start living in holiness, meeting the standard, being a Christian, you're going to have to start living the gospel. What does that look like? How do do we do that? Well, remember back with me. How does the gospel save? What does it tell us first and foremost? First and foremost, the gospel tells us that there's something we're supposed to be that we aren't. And we're in big trouble because of it, right? So how does living living, um, the gospel look? What does that look like? The first aspect of living the gospel then would be growing, growing, get this, Growing in the knowledge of my sin. Growing in the knowledge of my sin. Growing in the daily knowledge of just how far I fall short of God's holy standard. In other words, growth as a Christian, living by the gospel, is daily seeing that I am further away from God's holy standard than I thought I was. Every single day. Listen to how Paul describes himself through his life. I think this is pretty chronological uh, in his life here. 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he calls himself the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be even called an apostle. Ephesians 3, 7, he says, I am the least of all the saints. Romans 7, 24, he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 1 Timothy 5, 15, catch this one. Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You only got two options there. Either Paul was being grossly fake and therefore posing or he really believed he was the worst sinner in the world. Hmm. So you see, The Christian life is actually a downward trend. Every day that standard is higher and higher and farther and farther away from me when I look at me and how I am in relation to God. So it's not that we're sinning more. It's actually quite the opposite. But that the Christian grows in his knowledge of sin. And that doesn't mean we try to go around and see which one of us can feel worse about ourselves than the other one, right? Because the gospel never leaves us at our sin. The gospel confronts us with our sin, yes, but what does it immediately do at the same time? It immediately takes us to the cross. And so as we see God's holy standard as being much higher than we ever thought, we grow in our knowledge of sin and how separated we are from God. What happens to the cross? It has to. It has no other option but to swell in significance. It becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. The farther and bigger I see that gap becoming, the bigger the cross is to me because I see just exactly what it has done. 
I start to see that I need Jesus more today than I needed him yesterday. And I know that I'm going to need him more tomorrow than I needed him today. Every day just becomes an exercise in discovering how much I need a Savior. And how sufficient of one I have in Jesus. My every decision, my every thought, my every interaction with other people, my desires, all of them are merely serving to show me how much I need this Savior and this cross. And so as the cross swells and as it takes the center stage in my life, I find that I can do nothing without it. You kind of start to understand what Paul meant when he said for me to live is Christ. Paul was not saying I'm a better Christian than you. Paul was saying I can't even breathe without Jesus. He's all that I have and all that I am. So as the cross swells, you got to see what else swells. Our hearts, our love for the cross, our love for this God that has poured out his grace on us in such a tangible way. And as our hearts swell, we become loving people. What am I supposed to do? What are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. We become loving people. We're approachable. We're genuine. People know that we know who we are and we know what defines us. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, this is a favorite illustration I think of a lot of people. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, the most popular preacher, Baptist preacher in England in the 1800s. There's a story I've heard millions of times about him. He preached in a church one time in England, uh, and he's standing outside with the elders as the, the parishioners are exiting the church, and he's shaking hands. And an old lady, as she makes his way to him, shakes his hand and says, Mr. Spurgeon, I just want to tell you that you were the most arrogant man I have ever met, and I wanted to be the one to tell you. And she went on her way. And everybody in the line and the elders standing there all kind of holding their breath like, what in the world just happened? And Spurgeon leans over to the guy next to him and says, she doesn't even know the half of it. We love that. I love that story. I think people love that story because we want to hang out with people like Charles Haddon Spurgeon. That when they're confronted with their sin, they just say, yeah, if she only knew. So you got to see, wrapping all this up here, when we stumble over the gospel and leave the cross because we think it was just supposed to get us started on our way or something, when we're defined by what we do, in that view, we were defined by our actions, but in this view, we are defined by the cross. Our eyes can go nowhere else. We're not obsessed with ourselves. We're not obsessed with measuring up to the people around us because we know the one that measured up for us and none can touch him and none can touch us because of him. No longer sins in the hands of an angry God, but sinners saved by grace and we know it. 
And as the cross swells, we get our eyes off ourselves and we're now free to live for something bigger than us. Look at what happens to Naaman in verse 15. As he comes bearing gifts and confessing the God who saved him. He's been freed to serve something other than his own ambitions. He's now free to give. He's now free to love. But really, he's now just free to live for the first time. What do I do? Believe. Believe on Jesus his cross, his life, his death, his resurrection, and live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing gospel. And we are so ever amazed and thankful that it runs contrary to everything that we've been running from, to, or against all our lives. Father, would you give us the freedom, freedom from the bondage of measuring up? And would we find ourselves resting in the one who is all sufficient for us? Yesterday, today, and forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all stand for a benediction? Y'all would stand. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.